Today on Ag News Daily. This is a movie about hope and solutions. I think people don't have to just be concerned about climate change to really resonate with this film. Farmers have year after year seen a decrease in their yield. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast today with Delaney Howell. Delaney, what is your Wednesday looking like? Well, Ashton, I tell you what, I apologize to our listeners. I got a little bit of an allergy or like a head cold going on. So I'm going to try and keep things upbeat and sounding good. But if there's any sort of nasaliness that approaches into my voice, I apologize in advance. Well, Delaney, I will excuse that for today. I know that allergies and head colds especially are really not a fun thing to deal with. I've got some pretty bad allergies myself, but moving right into the news, I have an update. Well, not really an update, I guess, but just kind of a following of China. They have now suspended poultry imports from a second U.S. poultry facility because of coronavirus cases among workers. According to the USDA, the OK Foods plant in Fort Smith, Arkansas, became ineligible to export to China on September 13th and will be unable to export to China until further notice. China, of course, is continuing to block products from some plants in not just the U.S., but other countries as well, in effort to control the spread of COVID-19. And to just rejog everyone's memory, Beijing suspended imports from a Tyson food plant back in June. So we are continuing to see China stop imports from other countries that are seeing an increase in COVID-19 cases at production facilities. Yeah, and I also have a piece of Chinese-related news here as well. Not really COVID-related, but China is expecting to see a really small corn crop this year. A lot of different factors going into that. But because of that, we've seen folks at J.P. Morgan and ADM both come forward and say that they expect to see the Asian nation Come to the U.S. buying table once again, and we are expected to see exports hit a record in fourth quarter, according to J.P. Morgan. And ADM said that they expect a strong performance here for the second half of the year and anticipate to see China buying a lot more corn from the world market this year into next year. So that does pose, of course, a good It's not really a problem, but a good uh, piece of news to have here for folks, uh, you know, working with soybean production. And, you know, I don't think it was just this news. There's definitely some technical things going on in the markets, but uh, soybeans closed much, much higher on the day. They continue their upward rally here. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. But talking to some farmers, Ashton, I tell you what, on uh, Twitter and elsewhere, they're excited finally for the markets. They're seeing basis prices get pretty strong in a lot of different areas and uh, finally starting to see a little bit of positivity here echoing through rural America. So that's definitely a positive. It absolutely is, Delaney. And I also have some positive news for milk producers. And, you know, despite the COVID-19 pandemic, or not despite, but other than the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, we are seeing wildfires, hurricanes, and, you know, the the derecho storms. So there are lots of crises. And to help 
milk producers better prepare for and respond to crises. The National Milk Producers Federation has created a new webpage for dairy farmers, and it's just nmpf.org slash disaster hyphen resources if you want to go check that out. But it is offering natural disaster related resources and information. And I have a quote here from Jim Mohern, the president and CEO of NMPF. And he was quoted as saying, 2020 has been difficult enough with the COVID-19 pandemic, but as with COVID-19, with COVID-related disruptions, NMPF is here to help its members in the broader dairy community. And many producers are facing urgent needs to take precautions to protect themselves, their workforce, and their livestock. And because emergencies and disasters can occur at any time and without warning, regardless of where a farm is located, all producers should consider developing or updating their emergency action plan on their farm. So this new page that in an NMFP has put together includes information compiled from authoritative sources on topics ranging from fire safety for livestock to on-farm hurricane preparation and the USDA's disaster assistance discovery tool. So definitely a good resource, especially times like this for dairy producers to go and put together an emergency action plan. Absolutely, Ashton. And, you know, in other agribusiness news, I thought this was interesting. This hit the news wire late last evening, and I'm sure folks have already seen it now, but Farmers Business Network, who I believe we've had on the podcast before, but uh, of course, do kind of what I would call a group plan for seed and all of those chemical inputs, all of those different things, uh, you know, white labeling products, I should say. They have announced that their membership platform to farmers, which typically costs around $700 a year, is now transitioning to a free platform to help farmers reduce their costs of production and maximize the value of their crops. They said, according to their CEO and founder, that they understand farmers are dealing with a trade war, unpredictable weather conditions, now COVID-19, and it's been really challenging to for farmers. And, you know, they said, we view this as an investment in our customers by providing this free membership. Now all farmers will have access to select products and services that range in their platform. They said they've uh, got about 14,000 farmers that use it worldwide, uh, representing about 45 million acres. And so they anticipate to see more farmers coming to the platform to use it with this now free membership platform. My question is, and I think Ashton, we're going to have to do a little digging here, whether we get an FB on, FBN folk on to talk about it or not, is how are they anticipating to pay for all of these features? Because they've got quite a few different ones. So I think I read something else that said they were looking at some private investment money. Um, they've done a couple different series of funding. So we'll, we'll continue to watch this story, but uh, I've seen a lot of farmers on both sides of this issue, some for and some against FBN, sharing their own takes on Twitter. So we'll continue to watch that story and see what develops here. We sure will, Delaney. And I just have one more piece of news that I've been keeping my eye on today, and it is about Cargill. 
They are supporting farmer-led efforts to adopt practices and systems foundational to regenerative agriculture practices across 10 million acres of American farmland over the next 10 years. And we're going to be talking more about regenerative agriculture in our interview today. So I thought this would be a great addition to the podcast. But this initiative will focus primarily on row crop rotations that include corn, wheat, canola, and soybeans and other staple crops. Cargill expects these regenerative agriculture practices to benefit the long-term profitability and resiliency of farmers while simultaneously advancing the company's progress against its science-based climate commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in its global supply chains by 30% per ton of product by 2033. The initiative will also contribute to the company's efforts to protect and enhance water resources. Through the initiative that was announced this week, Cargill will work with partners and other stakeholders across the supply chain to provide farmers access to technical and agronomic resources that support yield and profit objectives, training opportunities, support with data collection for benchmarking, and visibility to the needs of downstream consumer-facing companies. And understanding the financial pressures farmers are facing, Cargill will help connect farmers to cost-sharing programs and support the development of new market-based solutions to incentivize outcomes that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and improve and protect water quality. So I thought this was very interesting. And the article that I read actually goes on to list a number of their partners and some of their goals, I believe. So I think I'm going to put this in the newsletter that comes out on Friday for the network because it was very interesting to read about. Yeah, I think Cargill might be the first, if not one of the first, to come out with a program like this. So that would be another interesting interview, I think, Ashton, for us to line up for a future podcast. Absolutely. I am on that, Delaney. (laughs) Perfect. I appreciate that. Well, I tell you what, I have just uh, two other pieces of news here related to Congress. We have in the House on Tuesday... Uh, We saw folks offer up a new coronavirus relief package that uh, seemed to not be taken well. A group of House Democrat committee leaders quickly rejected this plan. It was about $2 trillion in total. But, um, you know, I think the thing to remember here is they're still trying to put something together. Whether or not we see it happen or come to fruition is one thing, but it does sound like the House is going to be really where this thing gets held up. I suppose when it gets to the Senate side of things, it's expected to have quick passage and move on if they ever get to that point. But also going on in the House next week that I thought was interesting with all of this SRE, small refinery exemption waivers going on, the House is expected to actually vote on or not vote on, I should say, consider, bring to attention legislation that contains language requiring more transparency around small refinery exemption waivers. Don't know what that language is. They didn't give any indication about that. But they also said that this bill is unlikely to go anywhere in the Senate uh, and are not expecting it to really move forward. But Colin Peterson went on to say, you know, he's getting tired of trying to solve problems that were created by the administration in the first place, and these waivers were never justified. So they want to put some sort of language in place to prevent this from happening in the future, and I think prevent so much time from being focused on this. So we'll see if anything comes from that, but just another thing going on in Congress this week. 
Yeah, Delaney, I am all out of news. So if you are ready to hop into the markets, I am too. I certainly am, especially like I mentioned earlier for those folks growing soybeans. Hopefully you've got some soybeans still in the ground and haven't been affected too much by the interesting weather patterns we've seen here over this growing season. But soybeans keep moving right along. Looking off here first at the November soybean contract up 19 and three quarters cents today to close at 10, 11 and a quarter. The January up 19 and a half to close at 10, 15 and a quarter. In the corn pits, the December contract put on five and three quarters cents today to close at 371 and three quarters. The March up five and a quarter to close at 381 on the nose. In the December wheat pits, the Chicago contract closed three and three quarters cents higher to close at 542. The March up three and a half to close at 550 and three quarters. In the livestock pits, the live cattle contract October shedding 37 and a half cents today to close at 106.72. The December up 37 and a half to close at 111.95. Feeder cattle could not come through today with higher gains as the September contract lost a dollar 17 to close at 140.50. The October down a dollar 27 and a half to close at 142.42 and a half. Lean hogs also did not finish higher on the day today as the October contract shed 47 and a half cents to close at 65.22. The December down $1.07 to close at 61.97 and a half. And in the dairy pits, the October contract added 22 cents today to close at 18.89. The November up 24 cents to close at 17.60. Without further ado, Ashton, let us know who we're talking to for today's interview. Well, like I said earlier, we are talking about regenerative agriculture, specifically in the film documentary, Kiss the Ground. And we are talking to directors, Josh and Rebecca Tickell. Today on the podcast, we have Rebecca and Josh Tickell, and they have been working on a super cool project called Kiss the Ground, and we will get into that a little bit more later on in the show. But Rebecca and Josh, thank you for coming on today. Our pleasure. Thanks for for having us. So to kick off, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about Kiss the Ground, because it sounds very interesting on my end. I've read up a little bit about it, but I want you all to put in your own words and describe this project to the listeners. Well, Kiss the Ground is a feature-length documentary film narrated by Woody Harrelson, and it's about soil regeneration. And what we mean by soil regeneration is basically types of agriculture, whether that's farming, ranching, agroforestry, cover cropping, types of agriculture that build soil, specifically the soil organic matter, and that build carbon in the soil. Yeah, I'm really excited that you guys are are starting to shine a light on this because I think in agriculture, We talk about this a lot, but it really hasn't been brought to mainstream attention yet about what can we do as, you know, either gardeners, farmers, ranchers, whatever, to improve our soil health. So how did you guys, I'm interested to hear how you came up with the idea to start a documentary about this project. Well, that's a, there's many answers to that question. I mean, uh, I my family, they're farmers. It's four generations of farming in my family. R- rumor has it that my my family brought the seedless watermelon to Indiana. <laughs> mm. 
And Josh has traversed the world talking to farmers about how they can um, make fuel from um, their crops. And so we have a long history working with farmers, family as farmers, talking about um, how we can support farmers and also this great news that we've discovered that soil not only can grow healthy food that feeds the world and feeds all of us, but it also can be a solution for how we can take all of that ex excess CO2 that we have in the atmosphere and draw it down into the soil, creating healthy soil and also reversing desertification at the same time. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting premise to talk about when you guys were going through and putting together this documentary event, I want to get to talking a little bit more about how you went about collecting the folks that are a part of it. Cause you've got some big name actors that are a part of this project with you. But when you went to putting together the storyline, tell me about the folks that you reached out to. Were you working with farmers? Were you working with scientists? Were you working with, you know, everyday people or, or how did you go about putting that storyline together? Well, there are over 300 scientists that contributed to the movie. Uh, many of the cuts had literally hundreds of people reviewing them. So, yes, the storyline was uh, evolving because, you know, the first footage of the film was shot nine years ago. We came on board and started shooting seven years ago. So there's a lot of information that's come to light in the last seven years. And essentially, we just started by interviewing soil scientists who uh, maybe aren't the most exciting people to talk to on camera. <laughs> um, but soil scientists led us to certain ranchers and certain farmers and certain research stations. And that kind of, from there, led us on this, not exactly wild goose, but certainly a very interesting journey to get to the point where we had a well-rounded story um, about soil. Because if you go, well, you're going to make a movie about soil, it's like, what? You're going to make a movie about dirt? That's not inherently uh, an interesting thing to make a film about. So we tried to find people and characters that would tell the story and whose lives we could look at in the context of what they were doing with soil um, because people are infinitely more interesting and connectable. And that's, I think the root of what became the movie was how do these people's lives connect? How does the bigger story about what they're saying, how does it connect from person to person to person? And that's how the movie evolved. Well, it's definitely sounding like a very interesting process and a very long one at that. But, you know, within the past few years or so, I've noticed so many more people talking about climate change and the environment and what we can do to help our Earth. But how is Kiss the Ground different from other documentaries? Because like I said, I have seen more discussion about this and thus more documentaries. So what really sets this one apart from the others? This is a movie about hope and solutions. I think people don't have to just be concerned about climate change to really resonate with this film. Farmers have year after year seen a decrease in their yields and an increase in the cost that it takes to create those lessening yields. My, my family have fixed 
this themselves. And so what Kiss the Ground shows people is that through switching farming practices from conventional agriculture to what's being called regenerative agriculture, not only does the nutrient density of the food increase, but also the bottom line and the profit margin of the farmer also begins to exponentially increase. And that's a system, the conventional ag system has been on life support and propped up by subsidies. And I know that farmers are very interested in getting off of those subsidies and to be empowered to really make a a profit off of their land while also being good stewards of that land. And the way to do that is through diversifying and starting to implement the practices of regenerative agriculture. So, Rebecca and Josh, is your audience for this feature more so the ag audience, or is it just general consumers that you're trying to educate and share about uh, regenerative agricultural practices? And, And secondly, if your audience is consumers, how do you think they will respond to this documentary and, you know, hopefully understand, start to understand what agriculture, what farming is going through to try get there to being able to produce a regenerative food system? I mean, I think there's three markets for this film. One is definitely farmers. Farmers, you know, they're the, they're the heroes not only of our past, but also of our future. It's through farming, through shifting our farming, that we're going to really see um, a lot of the problems that we're facing today begin to turn around in in a society full of people who are grateful to these farmers for all that they're doing to make that happen. And so farmers through um, practicing regenerative agriculture, increasing the nutrient density of the food, restoring soil health, restoring climate health, um, that's definitely number one. Number two um, is students and young people who have gotten to a place where they feel very paralyzed and helpless in the current situation, who are very interested in learning about the science and who are very interested in climate change, who are going to be very excited to receive this message. And we've seen that so far, like 11-year-olds finding a whole new pathway for their future and wanting to become farmers. And I think it's been a while since we've seen a generation of people who are excited about farming. Um, And then lastly, it's anybody who eats food. Everybody, every time we choose what we eat, we're voting for a type of agricultural system. So this is something that affects everybody. And I think right now during COVID more than ever, people are really interested in where their food is coming from. Um, And this is a great opportunity. You know, we've seen how quickly we can change our, the model for our society by the drastic changes that we've all experienced just this year in 2020. But on the other hand, it's actually kind of exciting because it shows that we can change and we can change quickly and that there is hope for our future. Well, guys, I just have one last question before I let you go. Where can our listeners find this film and when does it come out so they can watch it? Well, folks can find the film on Netflix starting September 22nd. It'll be available globally in 25 languages. And if for any reason you don't have Netflix, absolutely go to the website, kissthegroundmovie.com. That's kissthegroundmovie.com. You can pre-order the DVD right there. Blu-rays and DVDs available uh, all over the world in different formats So you can get a DVD sent right to your mailbox. Uh, If you don't have Netflix, no problem. And then it'll be on other platforms starting later this year. But kissthegroundmovie.com, kissthegroundmovie.com, also on social as kissthegroundmovie. 
Well, again, Rebecca and Josh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And we will definitely be keeping our eye out for Kids to the Ground to come out on Netflix. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, again, a big thank you there to both Josh and Rebecca for joining us on the podcast. We didn't get to mention or talk about this really uh, during the interview itself, but Woody Harrelson is actually narrating this film. So I'm a big Woody Harrelson fan. I don't know about you, Ashton. I think he's got a good voice. So I'm excited to see this film on Netflix in just a, what about a week? I know I I did notice that they had Woody Harrelson that was narrating it and I got super excited. I felt super cool because they also have Ian Summerholder, who is a pretty good actress or actor, excuse me, but pretty good actor. And then Jason Mraz has a song I know that's featured in the film. So pretty cool stuff that they've got going on. And we are always doing some pretty cool stuff here on the Ag News Daily podcast on social media at Ag News Daily and on our website at agnewsdaily.com. So be sure to follow all of the cool things. Delaney, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.